0: This is Pathways. I'm Randy Brookwoods. My guest today, joining us remotely, is Dr. Megan Rosen, who is a staff writer and general assignment reporter for Science News Magazine. She reports on a variety of topics in Science News, from camouflage robots to feathered dinosaurs and stretch electronics. In a recent issue, she reported on the discovery of two 52-million-year-old fossils of the Tomatillo plant. Megan graduated from the science communication program at the University of California Santa Cruz in 2012 after completing her PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology with an emphasis in biotechnology at UC Davis. At Davis, Megan focused on figuring out how hormone-sensing proteins pitch into kidney and liver cancer. In addition to scientific publications, Megan has written for the National Cancer Institute, Science Now, and Wired.com. She has also written and produced stories for KUSP, an NPR-affiliated public radio station in Santa Cruz. With all the recent attention on the Zika virus, Dr. Rosen has become an expert, publishing over 25 articles in just the past year. In fact, I recommend her recent article in the 2016 Year in Review issue of Science News magazine, in which she talks about the Zika virus crisis. Dr. Rosen's articles clearly convey scientific, public health, and medical information to the public. I think we would all agree that it's critical to inform the public of scientific issues of concern, as well as to simply enhance their understanding of science overall. Let's find out how she ultimately arrived at Science News. Megan, welcome to Pathways.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Great. Let's start from the beginning, really, really simple. When did you first become interested in science?
1: Oh, I think I've always been interested in science. Um, Actually, my dad had a subscription to Science News for forever. So I grew up reading that magazine, and I think that was probably one of the first things that piqued my interest. Um, And then after that, I think in high school, I always knew I wanted to, I thought I wanted to be a scientist.
0: Interestingly, so I, I will, full disclosure, my wife and I have been science news subscribers for, gosh, probably 30 years. <laughs> Long time.
1: That's
0: nice to hear. <laughs> so, Do you have someone at, at the time as you were developing your interest in science, even though it's been, perhaps, you are bitten by the bug early on, who was a major influence in, in your life, maybe? A, a mentor, for example, and, and how did, did he or she... Impact your your growth.
1: That's a good question. I think I've had a lot of mentors going through um, through school. I mean, probably my first would be my dad. He was a physics and chemistry teacher, and then in high school, I had some some really great anatomy teachers. So that kind of moved me into the biology direction, which was completely different from what um, my dad liked. So maybe there's a reason for that too. And then I think my next m- major advisor would have been my PhD advisor um, because you don't always get great mentors in grad school, but he was someone who would always sit with you and talk about the science and, you know, not just try and get you to write your papers, but talk about the what's really going on with your experiments. So I think that's a really important thing for young scientists to hear.
0: Absolutely. So let's take a step back and talk about your your world as an undergraduate. So, you, as an undergraduate, you had a project that was where you worked on bacteria that could be weaponized. So, what was your project in that? Really, did that really stimulate your interest in doctoral education?
1: Yeah. So it did. It did. Um, so I, I came upon it kind of. Um, it was a lucky a lucky shot. I, I had no idea that I was going to end up into a lab in a lab that studied anthrax, but it happened to be at Northern Arizona University where Paul Keim is, um, is a big guy in the field, you know, looking at the genomes of anthrax and other types of uh, bacteria that are dangerous or could be weaponized. And so that's sort of where I learned, I learned everything. I learned how to run a gel. I learned how to um, look at, analyze DNA sequences. It was a really good starting ground for an undergraduate who had an interest in science,
0: but no real idea how to do anything. Well, I need to start somewhere, and I can totally appreciate that. You received your PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology from UC Davis. And from there, you entered the science communication program at at UC Santa Cruz. What drove you towards the science communication direction?
1: So I think early on at Davis, I knew that Maybe being a scientist wasn't quite right for me, but I wasn't sure which direction to go. So I tried a bunch of different things. I tried uh, being a TA. So I, I thought maybe I want to be a teacher. I knew I liked science, but I didn't know what direction to go. Um, teaching was was all right, but it wasn't exactly what I wanted. I tried interning at a biotech company because I thought, you know, maybe, maybe industry is different than academia. It was, but it still wasn't quite what I wanted. Um, and then I tried to take a uh, – actually a science writing class. And that was when it just started. It just clicked. Like, this is this is what I like to do. This is what I want to do now. Can I make a career out of it?
0: Did they? Where did they offer the science writing course? Was it at, uh, at UC Davis?
1: It was at UC Davis, yes. Um, I, I think it was a graduate class. I can't remember. There were, you know, maybe six people in it. So we had a lot of instruction. Um, and it was just a, a class teaching you how to write about science. Um, and that class, from that class, I started a science blog, which I always tell people, um, any type of writing you can do will make you a better writer. So I don't, I don't know if anybody besides my parents read my blog, but um, it got me used to looking at, up papers, finding ideas, figuring out fun ways to write things. And it was actually good because when I applied to the science communication program at Santa Cruz, I had something to point to, like a a history, a publication history as, you know, silly as a blog is, but at least it it was something to show, to demonstrate that I had an interest in this and a desire to do it.
0: So what were the types of journalism jobs that you had after your experience in the Santa Cruz program? And who are the individuals who helped you along the way?
1: Um, in, in the Santa Cruz program, I would say um, Rob Erion, who's the director, was an amazing mentor. And if anybody has the ability to work with him, I would recommend that. Um, so after that, I went immediately to an internship at Science News. And so um, I worked with our current editor-in-chief, Eva Emerson, who's been wonderful as well. And then after that, I went to the National Cancer Institute and did um, a short stint there. And that, w- that was a great place to be, too, because just seeing how different it is working for a magazine and working um, for, for the government, it was, you know, like night and day. And then after that, I came right back to Science News. And fortunately, I was offered a job, and I've been here for about four years now.
0: So which? So I did a postdoc at the NIH. So what? What building were you at?
1: Oh gosh, I I, I can't t- maybe ten or I can't remember fifty-two. I don't know. The, the,
0: was it the really really big building?
1: It was kind of in the, in the back. It was pretty big, yeah. Um,
0: yeah. The, the largest building is Building Ten. <laughs> which is that's the,
1: not familiar. It might have been that
0: yeah. one. Yeah. So it's it's easy to get lost on the floors here. I and I have. Could you tell us how you got your current job at 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 it's Science News in terms of the the steps that you mm-hmm. took? You mentioned you you'd done an internship and then you did the NCI, and but then perhaps tell us a little bit about how a typical day for you looks like.
1: Sure. Um, so I'll start with Mondays because that's when we have our pitch meeting. So 10:30, we all assemble and we. Uh, pitch news stories for the week and that sets kind of the pace of the week so usually sunday night i look through um, eureka alert and i look through journals and try and figure out you know three or four things that i want to bring up to the editors and then at our meeting we would say okay um, in science there's you know two really cool fossils of a tomatillo plant i think we should cover it because it's the first time anyone's ever found this and so you make your case to the editors, they say yes or no, and then off you go, and they say you've got this assignment, this assignment, this assignment, and you know, hopefully Monday I'm calling people up on the phone trying to get them to talk with me, and it's kind of a mad dash to get um, comments and trying to understand the paper and read it, and then you know, within you know, a day or two or three, if I'm lucky, um, I'll have the story written and in to my editors.
0: So your deadlines, like one to two days after you get the assignment.
1: I ideally from um, Monday store you know, for a Monday pitch meeting, the, the best you can hope for is a Wednesday at two o'clock deadline. But I have written two stories in a day before, which I don't love. <laughs> but sometimes you do it.
0: That's what it requires. Are are you the only science writer at Science News with a PhD?
1: Nope, there are lots of writers here with a PhD. Off the top of my head are, let's see, Tina Say, who's our molecular biology writer. She has a PhD. Our physics writer, Emily Conover, has a PhD. So does our astronomy writer. Um, there, Let's see, I think our, our earth sciences writer, Thomas Sumner does not. Um, and there are a handful of others who don't. I think it's probably 50-50. Hmm. Huh.
0: And that's pretty incredible as well, because you know, folks would think that science writers, look at say Miles O'Brien, he doesn't have a, a Ph.D. Um, Robert Bazell, who was with NBC and is now at Yale, he doesn't have a Ph.D. although he was in a graduate program at, uh, at UC Berkeley. But it's that interest that folks bring. And as we talk about communication and why it's so Im- important that you just have to be there and interested in a passion to communicate it to folks to right. be able to get these uh, types of positions. Definitely. So could you, could you share with us some obstacles that you had along the way and what you did to overcome them?
1: Um, obstacles in becoming a science writer?
0: Yes. Um, yeah. Yes.
1: So I guess for me, we talked about it a little bit. The first was just figuring out what I wanted to do because you think sometimes when you're in grad school, you're set on a path, but maybe it was surprising to me to realize, no, this isn't the path I want to be on and to realize that you can change it too. It doesn't mean you're set into becoming a scientist. Um, So, so trying out new things while you're in grad school is really helpful. I think people get so caught up in doing their experiments and working, 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 they don't realize that they're on a campus full of opportunities, you know? You can pretty much try out whatever you want. And it took me six years to get my PhD, so that's a lot of time to um, check out what a campus has to offer.
0: And, and But having those resources there where you can try different things is really, really helpful uh, as well. I mean, for for some, I guess one of the reasons I asked that question was that sometimes people say, "Well, you're not a real journalist." Of course, you did a a a science communication program, which is different than perhaps others who who are in the field. But uh, I mean, for some of them, it's like, "Well, all you've done is is write papers and get scientific papers in the literature." Right. What do you? And you had, but you had a blog. Do you think those types of experiences or, or I guess, ammo, are, are, uh, are critical for being successful at landing a job like you have?
1: I think so. Um, it's very different working on scientific papers than it is working on papers for a lay audience, or articles for a lay audience. It's you know, a completely different experience. It helps to be able to read and decipher a, um, a scientific paper, and that's something that I use every day and my PhD has helped me with, but it's still hard. I mean, my PhD was in molecular biology, but I write about robotics and all sorts of stuff that um, the jargon and the lingo of, of different fields doesn't come naturally to me. So translating that for a lay audience is, um, is a challenge.
0: Now, one of the things you had said, where you say, "Well, yeah, I have a PhD in molecular biology, and I can read papers in that field," but you do other things; you have to read other papers as well. So it was a good segue to a question I had regarding how you've had to use your your PhD training and what you do. You said part of it was reading papers, but how else? Because you, know, you PhD training's pretty diverse.
1: Yeah. Um, I think part of it is learning how to evaluate papers. Um, you know you look maybe maybe I'm able to s- evaluate whether um, scientists have done the right controls or at least I have uh, the knowledge of how to ask other scientists if they've done you know the correct experiments or if their methods are okay. So I think just having a knowledge of how science works helps me even in earth science, um, you know, figure out what questions to ask um, in an interview, but I'd say that um, sometimes you kind of have to forget some of your PhD training and not worry about asking really dumb questions to scientists and instead of um, speaking to them like a, a peer, even people that I'm familiar with their work, I'll say, okay, you know, what does what's a protein, I know what a protein is, but I want to see what they say a protein is, because they might have a really great way to explain it that I haven't thought about.
0: So when you're coming up with these stories, you are directly contacting the scientists, you're you're speaking with them, either directly if they're in the same, I guess maybe if they're in the DC area, for example, or by phone, and just, trying to get at how they explain things and to maybe help you translate what their discoveries are. Is that correct? Yeah. And and I think it's flattering for scientists to be asked questions. You know how we are. We all like to talk about our work.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm actually um, humbled and surprised at how often I would say, you know, important scientists will take the time of their day to pick up the phone and talk to me for 10 minutes, and um, honestly, I ask some really dumb questions sometimes, and people don't make you feel bad. They, they, I think they understand that the point is to get the message across, and the best way you can communicate with a reporter um, means that they're going to be able to communicate with the readers.
0: Exactly, and I think that's one area in our PhD training that we don't really have, which is how do we... How do we build that bridge between us as scientists uh, versus you know, our neighbors who are interested as well? They just don't have the, the PhD training, but they can understand it just as well as we can, only in different ways.
1: I always thought it'd be fun to, you know, after having this job for a couple years, to train scientists in how to talk to the media.
0: Yeah, I, I think one, I'll even... Uh, make a comment about that in terms of the Allen Alda Center at uh, SUNY Stony Brook, the commun- Communicating Science Center, where they're really trying to facilitate more of communicating using improv also <laughs> as one of the techniques to get the message uh, across and, and I think one of the things that's very important is what you're doing in helping communicate the, the word out to to science to the, the life public and the importance of us Ph.D. holders in learning how to communicate to help you do your job and by the same token to do what we ultimately want to do is to educate everyone on the very important aspect of why science is, is critical in our everyday lives. So, what kind of advice would you have for a PhD student or postdoc who's potentially interested in science journalism or say, science communication overall?
1: Um, so like I mentioned before, I would just just start a blog. See if you even like writing. See if you like looking for story ideas. Blogs are easy to start. I, don't, I think you could probably do it for free. Um, I also wrote for a newspaper in Davis. I mean, it was a little, I think newspaper is too, too big of a word for it. It is a circulating newsletter for um, a co-op grocery store, you know, but they put it out every two weeks and I wrote an article for free in it, but it just gave me some early um, experience with working with an editor um, and seeing, you know, developing a, a writing voice. So again, I think I really emphasize do any type of writing you can, even if it's for your neighborhood, you know, your neighborhood newsletter. People are always looking for free content, so that's a that's an easy way to get some experience. Um, and then, if you like it, then you can you know go to the next step and show people what you've done, and sh- you know that helps demonstrate that you're interested.
0: So, science writers will put together a portfolio, much like a, 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 of, of what their, their written work, much like a model might have. Photographs of them in with different clothes from different seasons. I I suppose because in, in a way it's it's an art, and it's just a matter of trying to show your artwork and to folks and yeah. interest interest them in, in your work.
1: People will ask for clips, which are you know uh, clips of your articles, and often you'll have to choose your best three, and so it helps to have an assortment.
0: What what would you say is the toughest part of your job?
1: For me, the toughest part is the fast deadlines. Um, so if I could remodel this job into my ideal job, I would be able to take all the time I want to make the sentences perfect and to make sure I have every single fact perfectly right instead of, you know, Oh, I think this is, this is good. I think it's right. You know, because sometimes you can't always, someone doesn't get back to you and you can't check things. Um, so that that makes the job pretty stressful. So if I had all the time in the world to write, that would be uh, make the job a lot easier.
0: Where do you write? Do you write in the office? Do you write at home? Uh, outside somewhere like at a Starbucks? I mean, where where do you write? Or maybe all of the above?
1: Um, we do most of our work in the office. So sometimes you can work from home, but most of the time we've got an um, office. I'm in a four cubicles with other writers and then the lower floors have the editors and we're constantly running up and down to talk to one another.
0: I guess that's helpful when you're trying to bounce ideas about how to best capture what you're, a point you're trying to make. Right. Excellent. Is there a question I haven't asked you that uh, you think our audience in particular would be very, very interested in uh, having the answer to?
1: That's a question I always ask people, so it's interesting to hear it come my way. Um, not off the top of my head, let me think for a sec. Maybe it would be good to tell people, well, to check out different um, writing programs in the US, because Santa Cruz isn't the only one. Um, I think there's one at, in New York, maybe MIT. So there, there's a few scattered throughout the US that, focus on science, so it's, it's a good idea to um, check them out. I don't think you have to go into a science writing program to become a science writer, but for me, it was the gateway, and I, I recommend it.
0: No, That's great. Megan, those are all the questions I have, and I'd really like to thank you for joining us on Pathways today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Megan Rosen, for a very interesting look at how she ultimately landed her current role as a staff writer and general assignment reporter for Science News. I also thank all of you for joining us on this podcast today. Remember, you can find us on the Indiana University School of Medicine's website and on iTunes under Pathways. Also, in addition to the audio from our broadcast, for some of our interviews, we've captured the video as well Join us next time on Pathways as we explore the career paths of biomedical PhD degree holders who are in exciting non-academic positions. I'm Randy Bretkowitz. The theme music for Pathways, Supernova, was composed by Aaron Bretkowitz. Pathways is a production of the Indiana University School of Medicine.